0: If you could find 2 Kings chapter 6, that would be really helpful. Um, we finished our last preaching series last week, which was the 40-day series, King's DNA. And um, as we get into the summer Kind of summer holidays time, people are away at various times and different times. We tend to go for more standalone sermons rather than a series. So today, I want to look at a, a passage that I remember reading for the first time many, many years ago. And it was kind of one of those moments where I read it and it kind of leapt off the page at me. And it's it's been one of those that stuck with me ever since. Um, so I'm really glad to have the opportunity to preach on it today. Um, it is quite a long passage, so I'm going to deal with it in two parts. Um, So we're in 2 Kings chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading first of all from verses 8 to 17. So if you have your Bible, follow along. If not, it will be on the screen behind me. So it says, Now the king of Aram, that's Syria, Aram is Syria, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, who is Elisha in this story, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. And so the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. So we've got the Arameans making their plans. And every time Elisha hears from God what's going on, he tells the king of Israel. And so they're always kind of a step ahead of the Arameans naturally this enraged the king of Aram he summoned his officers and demands them will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel he thinks they've got a traitor in their, in their camp none of us my lord the king said one of his officers but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom go and find out where he is the king ordered so I can send men and capture him the report came back he is in Dothan And then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a lot we don't know about this story. So, for example, it's not clear whether this is in chronological order with what comes before in the book of Kings. Uh, We don't know uh, exactly which king of Aram and exactly which king of Israel this is. You know, commentators have made educated guesses because you can put it in a certain time frame, obviously, but because uh, it's in the time of Elisha, but it's not clear which which kings these are. In fact, the only person named in the story is Elisha. But what I think comes out of this first part of the story that I just read is the difference between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight, whether you can see the spiritual reality of circumstances or not. And... We see here that, apart from Elisha, actually everybody is spiritually blind even even the good guys we see the bad guys and the good guys are spiritually blind. Let me just explain what I mean by that you 've got the Arameans the Syrians these are the bad guys in the story they 're at war with Israel, which means they 've been raiding Israel, and they, you know, they wouldn 't have been treating people with great kindness as they raided they 've been murdering and pillaging and looting and all the rest, destroying destroying communities these are the bad guys but no we know that they've been getting very frustrated in recent times because it just seems the king of Israel is always one step ahead of them they're being thwarted all the time in their plans now we have no idea how one of these Aramean officers knows about Elisha that's not explained in the story but what we do know is once the king hears about this and he, he realises this is what's been going on. They see an opportunity to strike the decisive blow in this war. To get this prophet, to get Elisha, this one who keeps on thwarting them. In effect, they're thinking, if we can take him out of the game, if we can capture him or kill him or whatever, then in effect, we capture the God of Israel. We neutralise him. We put handcuffs on him. We can finally take Israel and end this war and have peace. Which, of course, just reveals their spiritual blindness because they think the power lies with Elisha rather than with God. They're spiritually blind. They can't see the spiritual reality of the situation. That it's God who is thwarting them, not Elisha. But then you might expect them to be spiritually blind because they don't know the real God. They're Arameans. They don't know God. So, of course, you'd expect them to be blind. But they're not the only ones who are spiritually blind because the servant of Elisha, And by the way, that's not probably a servant as in a slave kind of servant. It's probably a a, a prophet in training. Just like Elisha was Elijah's servant, this is probably somebody in ministry. So a prophet in training. Well, he can't see the spiritual reality of the situation either. He comes out in the morning and all he can see is this huge Aramean army with all their horses and their chariots who have come to get them. And he's scared. Uh, You know, I think he probably would be scared. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to turn, but when God opens his eyes, when God gives him spiritual sight, and suddenly he sees the horses and chariots of fire. He's now he's not only seeing these horses and chariots on the ground who have come to be against him. He now sees this magnificent sight in the hills, in the skies, the armies of heaven all around them, and he realizes these are on our side. And it's like, ha <laughs> ha! Suddenly these. Horses and chariots on the ground look very, very different to him. It changes the way you see everything. I mean, it would, wouldn't it? If you saw that, that vision of the horse and chariots of fire, you would see a hostile force, something that's come against you in a very different light. But I wonder if you can identify with Elisha's servant and his initial, his initial response, where you feel surrounded. You just feel surrounded on all sides. You feel oppressed. You feel... Utterly overwhelmed by circumstances, and you can't see God coming to the rescue. Maybe some of you are feeling like that right now. You're going through something right now. Um, and if, if that's you, I'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you a bit later, believing that God is a God of breakthrough and that He really does make the difference in every circumstance of life. But when God gives us eyes to see, when He gives us spiritual sight, it changes everything. It changes how we see everything. You become aware of a whole new reality. And even the things that you're already aware of, the things that you're already seeing in your life, they take on a whole different dimension. You begin to see everything and experience everything in a whole different way. And it's like if somebody, for example, somebody who has been born blind asked you to describe a color. What does the color green mean? Sound like? What does the colour green feel like? And you can have a go, but you come to the place where you realise that sight is not just an extension of all the other senses. It's a whole other reality on its own. It's one thing to feel the face of someone you know. It's quite another to actually see them smile at you. It's one thing to try to explain to someone who can't see about the moon and the stars. But it's quite another thing to actually see them. You can really have very little concept of the moon and stars until you actually see them. Well, it's one thing for this servant in the story to hear Elisha say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I mean, that's great. That's really encouraging. But it's quite another thing for him to actually see that reality vividly portrayed before him. These horses and chariots of fire. You know, it's good to hear this truth, but it's even better to be held by that truth. When God opens your eyes, you see everything differently. So in the book Pilgrim's Progress, um, actually what I've got here is called Is Little Pilgrim's Progress. This is a children's adaptation, which I would highly recommend if you have children. It's brilliant. It's really short chapters, but so much you can talk about from it. Absolutely fantastic. Little Pilgrim's Progress. Anyway, in the book, Christian, or Little Christian in here, is heading for the Palace Beautiful. Okay, it's just part of the story. Has all sorts of weird and wonderful names. But he's heading for the Palace Beautiful, and it says this The path now became very narrow indeed. And when he had almost reached the palace gates, Christian saw the two lions lying just before him, one on each side of the way. The lions were chained, but it was too dark for the chains to be seen. And little Christian stood still, wondering what he should do. There was only a very small space between the lions, and he thought if he ventured to pass them, they would surely spring upon him. The name of the doorkeeper was watchful, and he knew how much the pilgrims feared the lions, so he came very often to the door of his house to see if anyone was coming near. When he saw little Christian, he called to him, saying, Don't be frightened. The lions are both chained. Keep in the middle of the path, and they will not hurt you. So Christian went on, trembling and very much afraid. But he was careful to keep to the middle of the path. And although the great creatures roared as he walked between them, they lay still, did not even stretch out their huge paws to touch him. And so you have these encouraging words of watchful. You know, Don't be afraid, the lines are chained, just stick to the middle of the path, you'll be okay. It's a little bit like the words of Elisha in verse 16, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, those who are with us, are more than those who are with them. And we see, little Christian, he goes through. He hears the words, he trusts them, and he fearfully goes through. But you kind of think it would have been very helpful for him to actually be able to see the chains, to see that there are limitations on this intimidating opposition. Well, it's the same for us. We so easily lose sight of the fact, the reality, that our enemy is chained. Colossians 2.15 tells us he has been utterly... Utterly disarmed at the cross. He would like us to think that he's very, very powerful. He can get us and all that sort of thing. The reality is he's chained. You know, he will roar at us like these lions roared at little Christian. He will roar. He'll try to intimidate. The reality is he can't touch you. He was utterly disarmed at the cross. He can only operate within the boundaries that God sets. A bit like a dog on a lead. That's our enemy. But we so easily lose sight of that. And we get into fear and we get intimidated. Of course, it tells us in John chapter 9 that Jesus came to bring sight for the blind. He he did that physically, we see that in the Bible, but he also does it spiritually. He does it spiritually, both in terms of salvation, opening somebody's eyes to God for the first time, but he also does it in terms of revelation for Christians. And when he opens your eyes, when Jesus opens your eyes, there are things that you may have believed intellectually before, just head knowledge, that now become dazzlingly real for you, absolutely overwhelming your whole life. You know, that's why the hymn writer doesn't kind of doesn't go, you know, I kind of like God's grace, it's really quite cool, God's grace. And no, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. You can like the hymn writer is almost searching for the words that can express how overwhelmed he is by the grace of God. Or love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, things that maybe were known theoretically before suddenly dazzle you, and it affects everything when God opens your eyes. We can know in our heads that God is loving. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so. We can know in our heads. We can know in our heads that God is forgiving without really seeing it, without really experiencing it for ourselves and in our own lives. We can know about it, but if it doesn't overwhelm you and grab you and transform you, then it's kind of like you're still blind and you need Jesus to open your eyes. But when he does, when he opens your eyes to the spiritual reality of who he is, of his forgiveness his grace, his power, your identity in him, then that overwhelms you. It has to. It overwhelms you. And it is as revolutionary as being born blind and then receiving your sight. It's like seeing the moon and the stars for the first time. You suddenly see a whole new reality, a whole new dimension, and it changes the way you see everything in your life, including those things you already were aware of. Everything changes. The way you see things, the way you interpret things around you, it all changes. And so sometimes our prayer needs to be simply, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Well, let's have a look at what happens next in the story. So I'm going to read from verse 18. It says, As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them this is not the road and this is not the city follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for and he led them to Samaria after they entered the city Elisha said Lord open the eyes of these men so they can see and then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria when the king of Israel saw them he asked Elisha shall I kill them my father shall I kill them do not kill them He answered, would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. And so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now, I don't think these men are actually literally struck blind, as in can't see anything, because Elisha says, follow me, and they follow him, and that's quite difficult to do if you've just been, if you've just been struck blind. Um, also, why would they believe him? You know, if they've just been struck blind, why would they believe him when he says, no, 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 this is not the road, and this is not the city? You know, they would have been pretty sure they're in the right place. There's only one Dothan they would have known they were in the right place. There's no way they could be in the wrong place. So you kind of suspect they would, have been, they would have had their swords out and they'd be slashing and stabbing blindly with their swords if it was just about physical blindness. So it's more likely that this really means God threw them into confusion. It's kind of blindness in, in, in that sense. He threw them into confusion. And they wouldn't have realized that they were in that state either. They wouldn't have known it. If they knew they were blind, if they knew they were confused, they wouldn't have followed Elisha right into the heart of Samaria. I mean, on an interesting side note, that's kind of quite a a principle that we've got there, is that generally speaking, those who are blind don't know they're blind. If you're spiritually blind, you generally don't know you're spiritually blind. You think everything is okay, but actually you're following a path to destruction. It's when you realize you are blind in some way, it's because God is opening your eyes to see that. However this happened, whatever it meant to be struck with blindness, what actually happens here is this. These men who are hostile to Elisha, and they're hostile to Israel, and they're hostile to God, they are led in confusion, in blindness, right into the heart of enemy territory, right into Samaria. And then their eyes are opened again, kind of like waking from a dream and coming to terms again with, with reality. And in that moment, they must have become aware of a spiritual truth that they, didn't, they hadn't known before. They, they must have become aware that they've got this very, very wrong, that actually this is a God who cannot be defeated. This God of Israel, he simply cannot be defeated. And they must have feared the worst in that moment as well because they know the sorts of things they've been doing to the Israelites. And the king of Israel is right there saying, can I kill them? You can almost imagine him with you know, one of them with his arm around his head and a sword against his neck. Can I kill them? Can I kill them? But says, no, you can't kill them. You wouldn't do that to somebody you had captured, but you didn't capture these men. This is not your conquest. This is the Lord's conquest. He captured them, not you. And then he goes on to demonstrate and show them exactly what happens when the Lord captures you. He gives them a feast and he sends them away. They encounter the most extraordinary mercy and grace. You know, it's interesting that Elisha had said to them, I will lead you to the man you are looking for. Because he was the man they were looking for. It's very clear They were looking for Elisha. He was the one they were looking for. But he says, I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And it's almost like he's saying, you're looking for someone, but actually it's not me that you need. You may think it's me you need, but it's not. I can show you the one you really need. I can show you where you can find true liberation and end this war. Because these men have come in hostility to God thinking that that is the way they can end this war by capturing, effectively capturing God and neutralizing him through Elisha and then enjoying peace on their own terms. But Elisha shows them the way to true liberation and that that comes not by capturing God. It doesn't come by being in opposition to God, by being adversarial to God. It comes by letting God capture you. And their experience of falling into God's hands was mercy and grace. And it says in here, So... Therefore, because of that, they didn't come back. The raids stopped, and it's like their hearts were changed by grace. Their eyes were opened to spiritual reality. In effect, Elisha showed them the gospel. He showed them the gospel. Now, undoubtedly, some of the Israelites, or probably all of the Israelites there, would have been absolutely horrified at this. You know, what are you doing, Elisha? How can you do... Do you know what these men have done? These men have killed some of my friends... They've killed some of my family. These men have destroyed entire communities, and you're, you're letting them go? What are you doing? They deserve execution. They deserve the sword, but you're letting them go. How can you do this, Elisha? And that's a good question, isn't it? How can he? How can he do that? How can he show them the gospel? Well, it's only because centuries later, there was another man a bit like Elisha, but a greater Elisha. And he also found himself in a seemingly impossible situation, surrounded by enemies in the garden of Gethsemane. And his servant freaked out a bit as well and got his sword out and cut someone's ear off. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. And he says, do you not think, do you not think, Peter, that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He's saying, I could have the chariots of fire. I could have the angelic host coming to my rescue. I mean, just imagine that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and more than 72,000 mighty angels just itching to get in there, intervene and defend Jesus, but they're being held back because the cross was the will of God. It's like Jesus saying, you know, Peter, I don't lack resources. This is not because I lack resources. Jesus lived under the same unseen protection that we see here in 2 Kings 6. He, he had the, the, the angelic host surrounding him. He had the horse and chariots of fire around him. But Jesus came not to be saved by them. He came to be abandoned by them. And the only reason that we can have absolute confidence... That we can be absolutely sure of ourselves being surrounded by this angelic host, by the armies of heaven, having, having their protection, that the chariots of fire won't abandon us, that, that God is with us and that he gives us a feast instead of giving us what we deserve, is because one came who took what we deserve. So the only reason we can know this for sure. The only reason we can know that we have the horses, of chari- horses and chariots of fire around us is because one came who had the horses and chariots of fire abandon him instead. And when we gaze upon that truth, when we get that reality, when God reveals that to us, it, it, when our eyes are open, it just changes the way we see everything. It affects everything Those who are for us really are far, far greater than those who are against us. It's the difference between seeing Goliath in relation to yourself and being paralysed with fear or seeing him in relation to God and taking him on. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you can know, absolutely know, that God has not abandoned you Because he allowed himself to be abandoned instead. And you can absolutely know that it's not because he's punishing you. You're not being punished because Jesus took your punishment already. He's not going to do that and then inflict more punishment on you. It's just not how he works. You can know he's not abandoned. You can know he's not punishing you. So you can live with the same confidence and assurance and steadiness that Elisha had when faced with extreme circumstances, we can do that when we put ourselves in the hands of the greater Elisha, in the loving hands of Jesus. Now, we know, of course, that God doesn't always intervene like we see here in this story. He doesn't always intervene like that because Christians do suffer. Christians go through very painful circumstances. Christians face persecution. Christians are being killed. We've seen plenty of that on the news recently. And maybe there are things that you're facing in your life right now. And it'll be different for, for different people. But you're facing something and you're asking God to intervene, but he just seems silent. It might be health issues. It might be financial issues. It might be being played by that same temptation over, over, over again, and then falling for it over and over again. It might be your children or somebody in your family making an absolute mess of their lives, and you are crying out for God to intervene in this circumstance, crying out for him to do something. You've got to do something, but he just seems silent. And then what happens at that time, those times is the enemy's voice comes in loud and strong, saying, well, it's because God's abandoned you. Why would he listen to your prayers anyway? He's abandoned you. Give up. You know, I wonder how this passage, this story, came across to the first reader's of this book of kings, because these books of kings were aimed, they were addressed to Israel in exile a couple of centuries further on. It was Judah, when Judah was in exile. So Jerusalem has been flattened and burnt to the ground. Judah has been decimated by the Babylonians. And the remnant had been carried off into a foreign land. I, I, I don't think they could see many horses and chariots of fire at that time. So how does this story come across to those readers? Here we have Elisha in the city of Dothan, and he's about to be captured or killed, and he prays, he cries out to God, and he is rescued. But there was something else that happened at Dothan centuries before this, when it wasn't a city, it hadn't developed into a city yet, because Joseph was chucked into a pit by his brothers at Dothan, in this very place, and he cried out to God, but he was sold into slavery anyway. So it appears that the chariots of fire came for Elisha, but they abandoned Joseph. They, they, they weren't there for him. Of course, we know, and Joseph came to know later on in his life. He didn't know it when he was going through it, but he knew later in his life that if he hadn't been sold into slavery, if that hadn't happened, actually his whole family would have perished. And the promises of God blessing the whole world through Abraham's family, ultimately in Jesus, that promise would have perished with them. So no, I think the chariots were very much there. It's like they were with Jesus centuries later on. I think they were very much there. The angelic host was there, but they held back because that was the will of God. And that's the thing. Even when you are in the wilderness, even when you're in the worst place, God is still working. He hasn't abandoned you. He is still doing something in you. He can still change your heart through grace. Now, it's one thing me trying to explain this story, uh, this this kind of truth through the story of Joseph, or me just standing here. T- but it's I, I just wanted to make it a bit more personal. So um, I wonder if Joy could wouldn't mind coming up? Just grab the mic there from Ron. So Joy, if you could just go for it, tell people your story of you know God working in darkness.
1: I, uh, when Ron and I got married we knew that we would love to have a family and um, we did just that our eldest son Andy was born and he was a great sense of delight and joy to us and um, about two years later uh, we had a little girl and her name was called Rachel and um Rachel was lovely and I felt very, very blessed to have my children and we felt very, very blessed as a family. And then one Monday morning, it was, we we had um, Rachel dedicated a few weeks before, but one Monday morning, it was a lovely, sunny morning and um, Andy was playing in the garden and I decided that I'd put Rachel in her pram in the garden for sleep. And uh, I carried on with different things, playing with Andy. And uh, I looked up at the sky, and it, it seemed to get a little bit dark. And I thought, I think it's time to go in. And so uh, I went to pick Rachel up out of her pram, and I knew immediately that there was something desperately wrong. She was very limp, she was very floppy, and she didn't look a good colour. So I raced inside with her and laid her on the floor and tried to revive her the best that I knew how, but sadly to no avail. So I dialled 999, called an ambulance, um, and then I thought, oh, i better ring mum because she will need to come and look after Andy. I also knew that I had to try and get hold of Ron, who was working at the local school at the time. So having made all those phone calls, everybody seemed to descend on the house at once. And um, we, we went off very speedily in the ambulance down to Wickham Hospital... And we had to wait in a waiting room. They took Rachel off. We had to wait in a waiting room. And it seemed as though we were there forever, just waiting for news. And um, the doctor eventually came and said, I'm sorry, but Rachel has died. And it just felt as though I was in a nightmare and unable to wake up basically it was a terrible feeling By this time my dad had just started working for the church and um, he came down to the hospital and uh, we were invited to go and say our last goodbyes to Rachel and then we started our long journey home and the journey home was a lot longer than when we went down there When we got home, um, mum said that the police had been as well. And um, evidently the police come and they they took um, some washing, some of Rachel's clothes off the washing line because they needed them for evidence. And uh, so apart from grieving and feeling shocked, I was also in a position of feeling almost under suspicion as well. Um, It was a week until the inquest and um, the verdict was that it was just a cot death and that there was nothing else that we could have done, which took some of the fear away from me. But um, again, it was such a traumatic experience and one that I felt I was stuck in for a long time. Did I ever feel that God abandoned me? I think I can honestly say no, I don't. I felt God's presence very, very strongly. It didn't stop me crying every time I walked past somebody pushing a buggy, but I did know that God was with me. Um, and then we had a, a funeral to arrange and I have to say that the members of the church were just fantastic I almost felt as though I was in a bit of a bubble but then of course reality has to come in and after the funeral everybody goes their own way which is natural but I still felt as though I was the one that was left carrying this dreadful grief and shock we had to go back to the consultant and uh, he said well i think the best advice i can give you is to have another child and uh, i said and what's the guarantees that it won't happen again and uh, he said there's no guarantees but it will give you something to look forward to in the future and uh, so we went on, and I became pregnant. And a very, the very day, a year on, that Rachel died, I had a, an antenatal appointment. And uh, off I went. And uh, I hadn't been looking forward to this day. And uh, they did their various tests, and they said, uh, ''Mrs. Lamb, we need you to go into hospital, ''because the baby's not growing.'' as it should do. And I'm not a very forceful person, really, but I said, no way. No way am I going into hospital today. So they said, why? And then they looked at their notes and they they realised, and they said, okay, we'll treat you at home. But God was very good, and God was also very, very faithful. Um, We went on to have... um, our daughter Becky and she was a great sense of joy and delight and God was also very gracious to us because um, we always knew that she was around she wasn't the quietest of babies and uh God in his graciousness knew that and knew that that was just what what we needed and also then we went on to have our son Steve and um But I know that that is not the end of the story because I know that one day we will see Rachel again in heaven and we will all be united as a family again and God will then wipe away all tears.
0: Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, for sharing that, I mean, you, you really can trust God even in the darkest places of all. And I think that would be the testimony there that you actually can trust, where Romans eight twenty eight says, "You know, God does work everything, even the very worst things. He works everything together for the good of those who love Him, for the good of those who have been called according to His purpose." even if in this lifetime we may never know what that good is, actually. It's trusting that he does that. And whatever circumstances you find yourself in, and maybe you find yourself in circumstances today, knowing that God has not abandoned you because he allowed himself to be abandoned instead. He hasn't, He's not punishing you because he was punished for you. And you may feel overwhelmed by circumstances. You may, be, you may feel overwhelmed by darkness. But I think, again, it would be Ron and Joy's testimony that... There is no darkness that can resist the light of Christ. And this is not about denying your circumstances. It's not about pretending, stoically pretending it's not happening. Putting on a smile for the world. God's not interested in you doing that. It's about knowing that God walks with you through circumstances every step of the way. He walks with you through the devastation of family breakdown. He walks with you through the heartrending pain of bereavement. He, he wades right in there with you into the recurring periods of depression, anxiety. He sits alongside you as you wait for your appointment in the hospital. He is with you. He doesn't abandon you. The question is, I guess, what do you do when you're in that situation? What do you do when you, all you can see is the horses and chariots on the ground surrounding you, you feel surrounded, you feel oppressed, you feel utterly without hope. Well, you can be honest with God and others, and we heard that from Di this morning when she read from that psalm. You know, you can be honest with God about exactly what you're going through, exactly what you are feeling. You know, you see it all the time in the psalms. King David often finds himself in desperate situations, and he he pours it all out to God. You know, where have you gone? Why, am I, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? What, what's going on here? You've got to rescue me from this. But what you see every single time is then comes a moment of breakthrough. It's like he gets this all of it. He just pours it out to God. And you know, God, you don't have to pretend with God. He knows already. He's big enough to take our, every emotion we can throw at him. But he's he's going at God like, why have you abandoned me? But there's always that breakthrough, and it comes to the end of the psalm. It's, but I will always trust in your unfailing love. It's in that moment of honesty that you can come to the moment of breakthrough. So be honest with God. You can lean on the fact of verse 16, the reality of verse 16, that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Like little Christian listening to Watchful, don't be afraid, stick to the middle of the path, they're chained. And he went fearfully, Through, We can hear that promise of verse 16 and put our trust in that, that that is true. But you can also ask God for the spiritual sight of verse 17. Lord, open my eyes. I need to see those chains. I just need to see it. I need to see your strength. I need to see the reality of this situation. I need to know that peace which transcends all understanding. So you can ask him... Lord, open my eyes. You can ask him to show you the chariots of fire in the hills all around you, surrounding you in the skies, the armies of heaven that are there surrounding you. Those who are with us are far more than those who are against us.